0: Hi, friends, and welcome back to this special edition of Sunday Dive. It's a little bonus edition, and it kind of feels like a little throwback edition because um, I don't have any (laughs) intro music. Uh, Either that or we're just really embracing Lent. I I hadn't really considered it before except this moment, but maybe we should give up the intro and outro music for Lent. Probably not, but nevertheless, um, I'm doing a stripped-down version here real quick, but I still wanted to bring you a special episode uh, for Ash Wednesday, and our readings uh, for today, our gospel specifically, is actually from Matthew, surprisingly, especially after I told you that we're not going to be systematically reading through Matthew again until uh, the middle of June. But nonetheless, we do have Matthew for our gospel, and this is a typical reading for Ash Wednesday, okay? So, uh, even though we are reading through Matthew, and our gospel from today is uh, for Ash Wednesday is from Matthew, it's not uh, for the systematic reasons that you might expect. Not only is it from Matthew, but actually it picks up exactly where we left off last Sunday. But again, I want wanting to stress that this is the typical reading uh, for Ash Wednesday: Matthew six verses one through six, and then sixteen. Through 18, the pieces that are missing, the verses that are missing in there actually cover the Our Father, but the church wants to to hone in on um, uh, the the threefold practice of Lent that we have here that we'll read about uh, in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6. So let's go ahead and read that together. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, again, that's our gospel from Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6 and 16 through 18. And there we get, as I mentioned, the threefold practices of Lent. So Lent is characterized by three things, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And here we hear Jesus talking about that. So not only is prayer, fasting, and almsgiving very biblically rooted in Jesus' teaching, but it actually has Old Testament roots. So for example, at Tobit, chapter 12, verse 8, we get mention of the threefold practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So it's not that this is new teaching that Jesus is giving. It was common for the Jewish people to practice prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, but Jesus adds something onto how prayer, fasting, and almsgiving should be practiced, okay? But before we get into that, I want to go deeper into the biblical backgrounds of the threefold practices, because sometimes we can have a tendency to think that the church just kind of, you know, all the bishops sat around a board, a boardroom table one day and said, what can we have our, our people do for Lent? And, you know, they, they whiteboarded it out and they put all these words and all these things up on the whiteboard and... After a lot of discussion and coffee and several heated breaks, you know, where there's a meeting after the meeting, et cetera, they came to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Well, that maybe that's the maybe that's how we think a lot of decisions are come to in the church, but it's very rarely uh the case, okay? Uh most practices in the church, though, though the decision to, to, to have certain practices may play out in, in somewhat of a fashion to what I'm facetiously describing. Like some of you might be like, I, I know what went on at the Second Vatican Council. I know that's basically what it's like. It was like, sure, but our faith is very biblically based. Okay, And so that's what I want to touch on today, the biblical basis of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. We already got it a little bit. Obviously, it's biblically based in Matthew 6 when Jesus tells his disciples to pray, fast, and give alms. I said that this was a Jewish practice. We can look to the Old Testament, to Tobit chapter 12, verse 8, for the threefold practice of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But let's go even deeper. So if we actually jump to the back of Scripture... We can go to 1 John 2.16, where John says that essentially all that is in the world, and when he says all that is in the world, he means what is worldly, okay? He says all that is in the world, in other words, all that is worldly, is either lust of the flesh lust of the eyes, or pride of life, okay? And these three things, lust of, the, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, are characterized or are named, I should say, by theologians. They're called the threefold concupiscence, okay? And concupiscence sounds like a big word, but concupiscence simply means a tendency towards sin. And when John here talks about worldly things, in general, when uh, the 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 scripture writers talk about worldly things, they're referring to uh, essentially sinful things, okay? And so what John is saying here is that all sinful things fall into one of three categories, either lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life, okay? now what's fascinating is that if you look in certain places in scripture where we have certain sins recorded what we find is clearly laid out if you know where to look for it indeed the threefold concupiscence okay so the most famous sin that we can possibly think of probably if i if i tell you think of the most famous sin in the Bible, you're probably going to go back all the way to the beginning of Scripture, to what we call the fall. So let's do that. Genesis 3, verse 6. This is the description of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? This is the the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit. And so we're getting a description here at Genesis 3, 6 of the forbidden tree, and we're told that it has three characteristics. We're told that it's good for food, that it is a delight to the eyes, and that it is desirable to make one wise. And what's fascinating is that each of these three characteristics clearly match up with the three full concupiscence as laid out in First John 2, 16. So the tree is said to be good for food, specifically the fruit of the tree is said to be good for food. And we can see how that is a lust of the flesh. The fruit is seen to be as a delight to the eyes. And so we can see how that is corresponds to lust of the eyes. And finally, the fruit is seen to be desirable to make one wise. Okay. And we can see in that a correspondence to the last concupiscence of the three listed in 1 John 2.16, pride of life. And so what Adam and Eve were struggling with in the garden, when they encounter Satan and his temptation to eat of the forbidden fruit, what attracts them to it? Because here's something that, that's important for us. And here's something actually really important for us to understand strategically in our attempts at holiness and, uh, and our own perfection, okay? We don't choose evil for its own sake. Man never chooses evil for his own sake, for its own sake, I should say. Man always chooses an evil because he perceives in that evil some good, all right? So we need to understand that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, it's not because they just were like, you know, I'm just going to be evil today. Some people uh, joke about like, you know, I'm evil. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of like emo people. Maybe that sounds really mean. I don't know if that's like a not PC thing to say, but some people embrace that like I'm evil. That's not, that's not possible. Because even in your attempt to grasp at something Evil, there's some good in that. Okay. Even if it's merely your own will and your own desire, even if it's merely simply a a desire to completely assert yourself, to say, like, I'm going to choose evil for its own sake. The reason you're doing that is because you want to completely assert your own will over anything else. Right. And that's that's a good to you. Okay. So Adam and Eve saw the fruit they heard Satan's temptation and they chose to eat of it, not because they wanted to do evil outright, but rather because they saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desirable to make one wise. Okay. Why is this person, why is this important strategically for overcoming sin? Well, first of all, we need to understand our own inclinations. Okay. And it can be helpful when we are, Uh, choosing things that are not good, to ask ourselves, what do I perceive as good in this action? And then to correct that false perception. Let's take gossiping, for example. Whether it's conscious or not, we perceive that by gossiping, maybe we we are venting. We're letting off steam and this releases stress and it makes us feel better about ourselves. We, we inflate our ego a little bit, okay? And just like a balloon, we go higher in the sky and when we go higher, we feel better because we're above everyone else, right? And so we when in, in evaluating our sins and our imperfections, we can notice what false good we are, we are chasing after. And when we correct that misconception, and when we say to ourselves, it may look good on the surface, it may feel good on the surface, but in reality, I'm harming myself and I'm harming others. Then we're moving to a place where we can start overcoming our sinfulness, all right? The other reason I think that understanding concupiscence, the threefold concupiscence, the fact that man never chooses evil for his own sake, why is this helpful? Cuz it helps us have a little bit of compassion upon ourselves, which is deeply important. We're actually going to talk about that more a little bit later. We need to have a certain self of a certain sense of compassion on ourselves in order to continue in the spiritual life. What is the spiritual life about? One of my favorite quotes ever Mother Teresa, God has not called me to be successful. He has called me to be faithful. The spiritual life is faithfulness. The spiritual life is not primarily success, the spiritual life is faithfulness. People give up on themselves, they give up on holiness. I would argue that people give up on the church and leave the church because they get tired of not being able to achieve the perfection to which we are all called to. And so we need to have compassion on ourselves, understanding our sinfulness, and and not not trying, right? I don't want to propose that you don't try. Otherwise, you're not remaining faithful if you stop trying. But recognizing our brokenness, and our disordered desires, our tendency towards sin, and having a little compassion upon ourselves. Why? Because because God has tremendous compassion upon us. He looks at us, and he sees how we are wrought with concupiscence, and he loves us in that. So much that he came down from heaven, became incarnate, died on the cross to give us grace, and to provide us with a way out of our enslavery so that we no longer have to be enslaved to our tendency towards sin, so that anything we see as good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, does not immediately make us fall, right? This is the beauty of what our Lord has done for us, okay? So all that is in the world, in other words, all that is worldly, is either lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life. First John 2.16, then Genesis 3.6 tells us, The fruit that Adam and Eve partook of was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Now, how does this fit in with Lent in the threefold practice? Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving each correspond to one of the threefold concupiscences. It's kind of a mouthful. Threefold concupiscences. Okay, prayer corresponds to pride of life fasting corresponds to lust of the f- flesh and alms giving corresponds to lust of the eyes okay when we pray fast and give alms we are actively overcoming our threefold concupiscence our threefold tendency towards sin we are actively doing the opposite of that and acting in accord with virtue, and and disposing ourselves to the divine perfection to which God calls us. Okay, so this is a beautiful, beautiful practice, an incredible practice. I'll throw I'll throw in this little bonus here, a bonus for our bonus episode. Um, the evangelical councils themselves also correspond to our three categories here. So the evangelical councils are um, those three things that uh, typically um, those in religious life, those in consecrated life, practice. So um, most often in religious communities, when vows are taken, there are three vows, and they're vows to poverty, chastity, and obedience. And each of these three vows, vows uh, toward, to the evangelical councils, vows of the evangelical councils, correspond to not only to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, but again, just as prayer, fasting, and almsgiving corresponds to the threefold concupiscence, so also the evangelical councils correspond to the threefold concupiscence as well. Okay. So if you're actually looking for like another way to look at the Lenten practices, um, and another way to find things to do for Lent You can look at the categories of the evangelical councils. You can ask ourselves, how can I better practice poverty? How can I better practice chastity? And how can I better practice obedience? Poverty, chastity, and obedience, okay? Now, let me get back to our gospel here, because I I said that um, what Jesus gives, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving as actions for his disciples are not something new, But our Lord always seems to add something onto them. And just as we've been hearing him in the Sermon on the Mount, because this is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to elevate this threefold practice. So he says, when you give alms. So first of all, let me address that. Jesus does not say, if you give alms. He does not say, if you pray. And he does not say, if you fast. Rather, he says, when you give alms do it this way. When you pray, do it this way. And when you fast, do it this way, okay? So Jesus is assuming that his followers do these three things. This is powerful and food for its own meditation, okay? Jesus's expectation for his disciples. And if expectation sounds harsh and makes you feel bad about yourself, Look at it this way. Jesus' desire for his disciples is that they give alms, that they pray, and that they fast. Okay, this is what God wants for you. And I believe that everyone deep down in their heart has a desire to follow our Lord in the way that he wants. Okay, so first of all, practice these things. Give alms, pray, and fast. But when you do, so for example, at verse 2, Again, Matthew 6, when you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so how do we give alms? Secretly. Okay. That's the key for our Lord. That's kind of the main message here. That's how he's elevating these practices. Give alms, but when you give alms, do it secretly. Let's look at prayer in verse five. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, when you pray, because it's assumed that you'll pray, how should you pray? You should pray in secret, all right? And, and again, I'm going to jump in here real quick. And uh, it's, it's not that our Lord is saying no one can know that you pray. It's deeply important that people know that you pray. Why? Because I have found that the example of others having a regular daily habit of prayer is the main motivator for others to take up a daily habit of prayer okay so your good works ought to be an example so what is Jesus saying here like if someone was to say to you do you pray are you do you have to lie because Jesus said do it in secret no but i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here but what our lord is saying is do not use your good works as a way to inflate yourself as a way to make yourself look good. Okay. And again, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. So let's touch on this last one here at verse 16 real quick, and then we'll circle back. Whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you again, do it secretly. Okay. And Jesus, he uses the same formula for each of the three, your father who sees in secret will reward you. May it be done in secret so that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's revisit the idea that I started expanding upon that what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is not that you know you have to lie if somebody asks you if you fast. Like if someone says, did you give up something for Lent? You don't have to say no to like lie or something. It's very helpful for us to edify one another and to motivate one another to share to an extent our good works, okay? What we're doing to draw closer to our Lord, especially during this season. Nonetheless, the main motivation for our actions cannot be the inflation of our own ego. It cannot be the inflation of our own ego. And what can happen when we are just killing it at our prayer life? What happens when we're just killing it at almsgiving? if you're killing it at almsgiving, I love that too, because as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, I wonder if anybody really kills it at almsgiving. I hope there's, there's some of you out there. This is something as a church we need to get better at. And if you listened to the last episode, you know, I already started to, to harp on that a little bit. And uh, let's talk about fasting. If you're killing it at fasting, right? What is I want to say what is the temptation, but it's almost like not even what is the temptation. What is the danger in that? The danger is you start to go, man, I am great at this Catholicism thing. I am great at this Christianity thing. I am awesome at holiness. In fact, I think I, I think, I think I'm a saint. I, I'm there. I have arrived, right? which is ridiculous and ludicrous. But you have to admit admit to yourself that this is a danger, okay? So our Lord, I think he uses a little bit of hyperbole. I mean, obviously he does. He says, uh, for example, in almsgiving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is figurative and hyperbolic to an extent, right? But what our Lord is saying is that we need to be so vigilant, about how we go about our good works or else our good works are actually going to have the exact opposite effect of what I want them to. Now, let me expand on that a little bit. There can come a time and there can be a situation in which prayer, fasting, and almsgiving can actually be the source of your fall in a sense. So let's, let's evaluate the fall for a second here. Uh, the fruit was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, okay? those All of those were problematic, but there's one characteristic, um, or there's one motivator, I should say, on the part of Adam and Eve that's most problematic, and it's the third. The fact that they took of the fruit and ate because it was desirable to make one wise. And Satan actually kind of elucidates what that means for us when he says, when you eat of it, you will not die, but you will actually, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Okay. And so the main temptation for Adam and Eve and the most problematic temptation for them was not the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, although those are problematic, but it was the fact that they took and ate because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to elevate themselves on par with God, if not even above him. They wanted to inflate themselves, okay? And not only that, but they wanted to stop relying on God for everything, because up until this point, they rely on God for everything, and he cares for them and provides for all their needs. They no longer want to rely on God. Instead, they want to rely on themselves, Now, we have practices that are deeply important in the spiritual life to allow us to grow closer to God. For example, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, okay? But if we use those things, if we use those things as not a means to conform ourselves closer to God and to become more docile to the Holy Spirit so that we rely more on Him— If we use them for the opposite reasons, whether it's conscious at first or not, whether we use these good works to rely, if we use these good works to rely on ourselves, we have forgotten the purpose altogether. We have forgotten the purpose altogether because our first parents fell by relying on themselves. And so God gives us these threefold practices so that we stop relying on ourselves, and that we were lear- we learn to rely on Him, we learn to recognize Him as greater than we are. We, we see ourselves for who we truly are, right? So you might be asking yourselves, okay, so Katie, you't you, you don't even say that it, it's a it's a temptation. To pride, if I uh, do these threefold practices, you're even going to the point of saying it's a danger. So there's almost like a danger associated with good works. So if there's actually like a danger associated with good works, how in the world, me and all my sinfulness, how am I supposed to like avoid these dangers? And I have two proposals for you. The one is to follow the advice of our Lord here in our gospel do these things in secret. Don't go, don't, don't tell people unnecessarily. Okay. Be humble. In a word, be humble about your good works. And part of being humble about your works is understanding that your, your success comes from God. So crediting your success to God, crediting your virtues to God. If you read the saints, they do this constantly. And this is, this is what sets them apart in holiness they recognize that all their good works come from God. All right. Now, so that's one way to to avoid the danger that comes with good works or being quote unquote successful in the spiritual life. Right. So, so we follow our Lord's, um, commands, essentially, I was going to say recommendations, but really they, they are commands that should be taken seriously. And we, Remain humble about our good works. That's that's one way to avoid the danger. The second way to avoid the danger is to embrace a tool that our Lord Himself uses to protect us from this danger. Okay. So God always provides for our needs and always looks out for us, right? So if I said there's almost an innate danger because we are fallen human beings, that our good works have the opposite effect that they should on our souls. Our Lord God, wanting to protect us from this danger, uses a tool to keep us humble. And what tool is this? This tool is failure. This tool is failure. Failure is a super important tool in the spiritual life. I would go so far as to say that failure is a gift from God. Now recognize i'm gonna I'm gonna preface all of this by saying it doesn't mean you don't try or you don't turn off this podcast and go, "Well, guess what? Katie says that if I embrace my failures, I will grow closer to God, so I'm not e- even gonna try. The fact is once you stop trying, you also stop failing. So failure implies trying, but God uses failure as a means to keep us humble. We can understand that on the surface level, right? I mean, what is more terrible than somebody saying, how is your Lent going? And you have to be like, it's awful. Or like, <laughs> you gave up chocolate for Lent and your spouse walks in and catches you eating chocolate. Like how humbling is that, right? So, so God uses our failures to humble us But he also uses our failures so that we are required, we are absolutely required to rely on him because only by relying on him can we actually achieve perfection. In our last gospel and at the verse just before the start of our gospel for Ash Wednesday, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It is not possible for a human to be perfect like God. Only God can make a human perfect. And so we have to, the key to the spiritual life is to completely rely on God, because when we completely rely on him, we allow him to transform us. This is the paradox of the spiritual life that the way we grow closer to God and the way we grow in perfection is by trying like all, like all out, right? Try like heck you might say, right? (laughs) All out trying, but also embracing our failures and seeing in our failures an opportunity to throw ourselves in the arms of God to pick ourselves up once again, and to start over again. There's a there's a famous Latin phrase that the spiritual writers often like to use: "Nuccepi, begin again." And so, I'd encourage you during this Lenten season that kicks off here today, or in a couple of days if you're listening to this early. Here in this Lenten season, embrace your failures and remember that Lent is about relying on God, and so never forget that if you fail in Lent, in your practices, in your good works, to once more throw yourselves into the arms of God, to rely on Him, and as soon as you can, to nunc chepi, begin again. Thanks so much for, for listening. I'll be praying for you this Lent. Tune in next week, and we're actually going to take up uh, our gospel. Is going to be this, the 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 story of the the gospel of Jesus's temptation in the desert, which actually teaser here relates perfectly to the threefold concupiscence. How many times is Jesus tempted in the desert? Three times. Woo. Okay. So tune in next time, and we'll actually continue this discussion in our next gospel for the first Sunday of Lent. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you. I will be praying for you.